0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Seven Years Later, Remembering 9-11. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 7th, 2008. On September 11th, 2001... 19 al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines in a coordinated suicide attack. One plane slammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, another into the South Tower, a third one plowed into the Pentagon, and a fourth plane that had targeted the U.S. Capitol crashed into rural Pennsylvania after passengers wrestled control from the hijackers. 2,974 people died in the carnage including 343 firefighters and 60 police officers. Twenty-four people are still missing. Our country will never forget that tragic day, nor should we. In some ways, the terrorist attacks were a uniquely American tragedy. The iconic 110-story World Trade Center epitomized America's economic might. But the attacks were also an assault on the whole world, even humanity itself. Citizens from 90 countries died that day. Although he first denied any responsibility, on October 30, 2004, Osama bin Laden said that he had directed the attacks. Why did Al-Qaeda attack America? At some level, all people are the same. No one can claim to be immune from the dark impulses of hatred, violence, and war. In his book, The Most Dangerous Animal, David Livingstone Smith asks why human beings slaughter each other on such a mass scale and with such ferocious cruelty. 200 million people in just the last century. He rejects the explanation that war is a matter of nurture, a learned behavior, or what he calls a mere cultural artifact. Rather, he argues that war is deeply embedded biologically in human nature, that it's innate in our natural impulse. As such, war is not so much a pathology or an aberrant choice, it's a normal feature of human life. Throughout history, Nations, and in this case non-state actors, have justified their wars with all sorts of rationalizations. Territorial expansion, retaliation, protection, self-defense, to redress evil, and to spread their economic and political ideology. America is no exception in this regard. For example, the 33-page National Security Strategy of 2002 praises American democratic capitalism as, quote, the single sustainable model for national access, right and true for every person in every society, end quote. And so we intend to export this American way of life, quote, to every corner of the globe, end quote. The NSS also says that we will act unilaterally and preemptively against any nation that twice tries to thwart those ambitions. The attackers were also partly motivated by their hatred of Western values, secular democracy that separates church and state, religious pluralism, freedom of speech, freedom to vote, the privacy of the individual, and toleration of dissent. For Muslim extremists and conservative Americans, this tends to be a black and white view of the world with no middle ground or ambiguity. Nations, said Bush famously, are either for us or against us. On one side, there's an axis of evil that would harm us, and on the other side, enlightened people who champion the true, the good, and the just. There are obviously some elements of truth in this view, but I'm not sure that I find it compelling. Other people point to the consequences of American foreign policy. A 1998 fatwa by Osama bin Laden and others objected not to our values but to what they called three specific crimes and sins. Number one, our support for the United Nations sanctions against Iraq, Number two, our support for Israel to the detriment of the Palestinians. And number three, the presence of our numerous military bases in their sacred Muslim lands. The fatwa also mentioned plundering Arab resources, support for abusive regimes, and undermining self-determination by trying to dictate policy. In this view, the 9-11 attacks were a classic case of blowback. Blowback says the political scientist Chalmers Johnson is another way of saying that a nation reaps what it sows. What many people hate about America says Johnson is our global militarism and predatory economic policies which virtually assure retaliations against us for decades to come. Instead of acting prudently we've acted we've acted with what has become predictable condescension towards other nations and with myopia about the consequences. Our overwhelming and global military economic threat, exercised with almost no fear of retaliation, says Johnson, is seeding resentments that are bound to breed attempts at retaliation. In addition to human nature, politics, history, economics, religion, and culture, Should Christians appeal to God's providential intervention to explain the Al-Qaeda attacks? Jerry Falwell infamously construed the 9-11 attacks as divine punishment. He claimed that the wickedness of pagans, abortions, feminists, gays, lesbians, the ACLU, and People for the American Way were the reason that God had punished America. In Falwell's view, America's policies aren't wrong because they're politically imprudent as a matter of practice. Rather, they're morally wrong as a matter of principle because they violate God's standards. It's easy to dismiss the remarks of Falwell as reckless and hateful, and they are. But even Abraham Lincoln once described the Civil War as God's judgment on America for slavery. What role, if any, did God play in the 9-11 attacks? Angering Muslim extremists with imprudent foreign policy is bad enough, but angering God himself would be calamitous. The Hebrew scriptures unambiguously affirm that God intervenes not only in the lives of individuals, but in the affairs of nations, and that he sometimes judges nations with what Jeremiah calls disaster upon disaster. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 12, 15, and 20. So Falwell was right that God sometimes judges nations, But he was wrong in the confidence and clarity with which he assigned the blame. In the scriptures this week, in Exodus 12, we read about the institution of the Jewish Feast of Passover that commemorates Israel's liberation from 430 years of bondage to slavery in Egypt. Liberation from oppression is always worthy of celebration. But the writer of Exodus construes Israel's emancipation to include Egypt's subjugation. Today we might say that the oppressed became the new oppressor. Except in this instance, the writer insists that Hebrew Hebrew revenge was the very act of God himself. God, we read in Exodus 12.12, will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. In something like divine infanticide, God will slay the firstborn of every Egyptian, from the highest in Pharaoh's house to the lowliest prisoner languishing in a dank dungeon, even including the firstborn of Egyptian livestock. To punctuate his point, the writer adds in Exodus 12:30 There was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And in a departing act of humiliating the enemy, the Hebrews plundered their Egyptian oppressors. Or consider the schizophrenic zeal in Psalm 149 for this week. The first half of the psalm describes dancing, singing, music, and praising God. But the instruments of worship like tambourine and harp give way in the second half of the psalm to weapons of war like swords and shackles. Listen to Psalm 149. May the, go- May the praise of God be in their mouths, and a double-edged sword in their hands, to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. I love the rather anemic understatement in the New Oxford Annotated Study Bible footnote to Psalm 149. The dance was evidently of warlike character. Yes, it certainly was. Perhaps the enemies of the psalmist somehow deserve their humiliation. Perhaps there's a mysterious divine providence at work in the rise and fall of nations. Or maybe you could read this psalm as the normal but tragic rhetoric of military conquest. For the psalmist, it was a very short step from pious praise to religious rage. He glorifies the religiously righteous who brandish the scriptures in one hand and a sword in the other hand. Some well-educated and well-meaning Christian scholars defend a theology of a warrior God who harbors enmity and who slays his enemies. I prefer the view of Daniel Berrigan who suggests that something like Psalm 49 might best be read as how the writer saw himself and his nation and how he wrongly thought God saw his enemies. I'm uncomfortable with linking divine judgment and national disaster, whether for America or for any nation. It's one thing to affirm that God acts in the history of nations, but quite another to claim to know exactly how, when, where, or why. Every nation is a mix of both good and evil, and thankfully a nation's ordinary citizens often hold opinions that are very far removed from the megalomania of its leaders, Jesus warned against linking human tragedy and divine judgment, Luke 13one 5 Isaiah reminds us that the ways of an infinite God transcend the minds of finite humans, Isaiah 55, verse 8. In his review of the book God's Judgments, Interpreting History and in the Christian Faith by Stephen Kyler, Professor Brad Gregory of Notre Dame offers us wise counsel. He says, claims of divine providence and divine judgment are at a minimum empirically unverifiable, if not also naive, irresponsible, and dangerous. So we shouldn't wish divine judgment on anyone or any nation. We should wish them God's shalom, When you imagine that God hates all the people you hate, then you can be sure you've created God in your own image. No, said the German pastor Martin Niemöller, who was once imprisoned by Hitler for eight years, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. What we should wish for every people and nation comes from this week's epistle in Romans chapter 12. Paul borrows a passage from the Hebrew Old Testament to instruct the earlier followers of Jesus, love your neighbors as yourself. Romans chapter 9.9, which is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. The only debt we should carry, he says is the never-ending debt to love your fellow human being. Loving your neighbor fulfills any and every other divine command for genuine love does no harm to its neighbor. The Exodus story and the prophet Ezekiel for this week both make a final and decisive point. Divine judgment is not predetermined. God's will is not some irresistible and implacable destiny as if he was a puppeteer pulling strings. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And so history is open and fluid, a mysterious interplay of divine mercy and human choices. Israel was idolatrous, but Moses, we read, sought the favor of the Lord his God. And as a result, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Exodus 32:11 and 14. Avoiding national disaster is an outcome for which we can all pray, all the time, for all the nations of the world. And so I pray that despite the pain and horror that America experienced on September 11, 2001, our nation, and especially its leaders, will adopt a similar posture toward all of our global neighbors. For books this week, I review Chris Hedges, the title, I Don't Believe in Atheists. New York Free Press 2008 two hundred and twelve pages. Chris Hedges grew up as a pastor's kid in rural upstate New York, where his father was a Presbyterian pastor. Six days after graduating from Colgate University, he began a two-year stint as a pastor in the violent ghetto of Roxbury in Metro Boston, an experience that was so unsettling that he left the church and seminary. After a year in South America, he completed his degree at Harvard Divinity School, though not without some very caustic opinions about his liberal professors who romanticized the poor whom they had never met, and the lectures which he experienced as, quote, intellectual shell games, end quote. And then, for 20 years, he covered a dozen wars in Central America, Africa, the Middle East, and the Balkans. These life experiences deeply inform Chris Hedges' writing. He's been around the block, and he does not suffer armchair pundits easily, which is about the nicest description he might use about the so-called new atheists, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Chris Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. This book, I Don't Believe in Atheists, originated with his separate debates with Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens at UCLA in May 2007. These new atheists, says Hedges, are the reverse image of fundamentalist Christians. He derides them as carnival barkers, whose stock in trade includes gross intolerance for any other person who was different from them, superficial analysis, the abuse of evolutionary biology as a surrogate religion, the confusion of scientific progress with moral progress, racist and crude generalizations, especially about Muslims, and what he calls a staggering historical and cultural illiteracy. But that's not even the bad part. What really angers Hedges about the new atheists is their uncritical belief in the utopia promised by the Enlightenment, thanks to the so-called inevitable progress of science, in the innate goodness and rationality of humanity. He's outraged at their evangelistic efforts to remake the world in the image of an ostensibly enlightened West. He quotes Harris and Hitchens, who recommend slaughtering unwilling converts, which proves his point that, quote, reigns of terror are the bastard children of the Enlightenment, end quote. Muslims, in fact, have a long way to go before they catch up with the tens of millions of people, mainly civilians, slaughtered by the Nazis, the Soviets, and the Chinese. Drawing upon heavy doses of Nietzsche, Freud, Dostoevsky, Reinhold Niebuhr, Samuel Beckett, and Joseph Conrad, Hedges urges us to recover our sense of the fallenness of humanity we must repudiate our smug and self-congratulatory self-image as morally pure purveyors of enlightenment. For to turn away from God is harmless, he says, but to turn away from sin, which is what the new atheists do, is catastrophic. Divine intervention in the world, he suggests, is absurd. History, he says, appears purposeless, and human nature irredeemable. Rejecting absolutisms of all kinds, we must embrace our limitations and imperfections. The utopian dreamers, lifting up impossible ideals, plunge us into depravity and violence. Only in such brokenness and humility, says Hedges, can we see, quote, the limits of reason and the possibilities of religion. Chris Hedges, I Don't Believe in Atheists. For film this week, I reviewed Darfur Now from the year 2007. The Darfur region of Sudan is an area the size of France with about 6 million people from 100 different tribes. The Sudanese government of President Omar al Bashir has backed the Janjaweed militias to pl- pillage, plunder, rape women of every age, and liquidate entire villages. According to the United Nations, 400,000 people have died and over 2 million people have been displaced, many refugees pouring into Chad. This documentary film takes you to Darfur and interested introduces you to people who experience these atrocities. But the film is really about six very different people and what they are doing to try to stop the genocide. Argentinian Luis Moreno, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court in The Hague, American Adam Sterling, co-founder of the Sudan Divestment Task Force, Chief Sheikh Ahmed Mohammed Abakar, of the Hamadiyya Displaced Persons Camp, actor John Cheadle, World Food Program Officer Pablo Recalde, and finally Hejiwa Adam, a woman rebel of the Sudan Liberation Movement. In one tragic line, said one person from Darfur, our problems have no limits, which might be true but we can be nevertheless thankful for these six people and many others like them who are trying to do something about Darfur. Darfur Now from the year 2007. For poetry this week we've posted a very short poem by W. H. Auden. W. H. Auden lived from 1911 to 2004. The title of his short poem is called Epitaph on a Tyrant. Perfection of a kind was what he was after, and the poetry he invented was easy to understand. He knew human folly like the back of his hand and was greatly interested in armies and fleets. When he laughed, Respectable sen- Senators burst with laughter, and when he cried, the little children died in the streets. Epitaph on a Tyrant, W. H. Auden. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 7, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.